bro. How's it going? You good? cool? Very, yeah, good, man. How are you? Yeah, we're live, man. We're good to go. Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you, man. Just enjoying the sun. Looking looking good? Fantastic, brother. We get a lot of sun. I'm in sunny Florida. We get a lot of sun down here, but recently we just had to go through that hurricane. That wasn't too much fun, but the sun's back out and we're almost back to normal. Shit, man. How was, it? How was your house and that after the, uh, the hurricane? All good? Yeah, it was all good, man. Very, very lucky on the East Coast. Uh, man, the poor people in the Keys and on the West Coast, I think they got banged up pretty bad, man. They're, they're finding more and more people that, uh, you know, that were in their homes and they actually died because they didn't leave. That's pretty sad. And a lot of folks lost their homes. So, uh, you know, God bless them. So um, tell me a bit about your background. Let's get the ball rolling. Yeah, man. Um, so I've uh, actually been in uh, uh, combat sports since 1992. I started uh, boxing uh, back then and uh, uh, went on to win uh, Golden Gloves in 1998. And, uh, fought in a bunch of uh, tough man fights, including like the National Tough Man um, in 2002. Uh, made it up to, uh, got second place. I think I was robbed, man. I think I got first. <laughs> I lost a, a split decision at the end. As it was tournament style. You have to fight uh, four times in one night, and I fought as heavyweight. and That was pretty fun, man. But I ended up transitioning to mixed martial arts in 2003. Uh, actually never had a fight in mixed martial arts, but started coaching then. I uh, did a lot of training, of course, and fighting in the gym. Um, but, it, but it was great because I was able to really apply concepts of boxing to mixed martial arts. And... Um, Part of my background is that uh, I'm, I'm trained in the science of human behavior. Uh, there's actually a science to why people do things, and there's a science behind performance. So uh, when I train boxing, when I train mixed martial arts, when I train in my fighters, I'm able to kind of conceptualize it through that lens, the scientific lens, and uh, really help to bring out the best of my fighters, uh, not just based on my opinion, but based on what the science says. So um, I've been doing that since 2003, uh, trained quite a few fighters, uh, you know, we, uh, the UFC fighters, of course, you know, your, your very own, uh, Brad Pickett, who, uh, you know, is my favorite guy, man, <laughs> love him, man. He's like a, he's like a younger brother. Um, you know, and many other guys, man, uh, we're working with some guys right now, Jamie Alvarez, Matt Schnell. Um, but I've uh, been around the block for a few years and, uh, very passionate about the game. So, uh, excited to talk shop about it always. Interesting lifestyle, man. Interesting life and that fucking 92. I was, I was just being born. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what was it like sort of winning, winning the golden gloves for you? Like, what was that whole process uh, like? You know, honestly, I don't think it was that big of a deal. I had harder fights in the gym. You know, I was always loved being in the gym. I love sparring. I love the competition. So, I mean, you know, it's always cool to get your hand raised, um, but really it was like the, my gym wars were like the toughest fights that I ever had. Um, so I, I just love the sport. I love the competition. Um, I, I, you know, I never, you know, thought about turning professional in the, in the 90s, um, but I stayed in school. I took a different path. I went on to get my master's and ended up getting my doctorate. Um, and it's kind of hard to live two lifestyles like that. So, uh uh, you know, I kind of faded into coaching, which I love. I think I was meant to coach. I love it. I love uh, coaching. I love being able to apply these principles that I know and understand. And uh, I love seeing people be successful at the root of what I do. I, I just like to help people. And uh, in this game, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, man. A lot of people don't know what they don't know. And uh, I like showing them. So it's great. Amen to that, man. <clears throat> I agree. Like, 
for me it's a massive plus when you're helping people succeed and push through and seeing the enjoyment in their faces and yeah even when they're lacking motivation or whatever just geeing them up and fucking getting them pumped and ready it's like for me i sit back sometimes i'm just like man i have like a good impact on people when yeah. i'm working with them and it's quite like satisfying rather than isn't it man yeah but um what weight did you did you like fight at when you was fighting um well anywhere i started fighting at uh, 178 pounds and then uh over the tough man which was the last time i really competed um i fought a heavyweight and i was a i was the smallest guy in the tournament i was 205 pounds and the guys i were fighting were 265 275 285 the, the smallest guy i fought i think was 220. Um, i had to fight all those guys in one night and being I was the smallest guy you know thank god i got a big head i could take a punch <laughs> <laughs> just just like getting ready to getting ready to tear it up and this 265 pound giant comes out and you're like i'm still gonna fuck you up man <laughs> oh man well i tell you i i had n i've never been down before and uh and this was a nationally televised fight you know this is not the best time to go down but it was on fx and i uh when the big you know the the 275er i think clipped me on the top of my head and Next thing I know, I'm looking down up at the lights. I'm like, what the hell am I doing down here? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I got back up. And I ended up knocking him out. But I'm like, that's a, you know, not the best experience to have. You know? Well, still, man, you got in there, you competed, you know, you did your thing. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun, man. It was fun. It's good as well, obviously, like, because you've sort of experienced, like, fighting, fighting, etc. And now you're teaching it, whereas yeah. there's some people that necessarily haven't been there and done it to be able to coach it do you know what i mean oh man i you know yes absolutely man it's good to understand you know a lot about fighting is like mastering fear you really have to like you know there's a saying true victory is victory over oneself and being able to master that fear and uh, discipline yourself um you know i've seen a lot of fighters take different approaches and different paths um, I've been around the world, you know, I've been to Russia and, of course, England and Italy and, uh, you know, we've captured titles all around. Um, but uh, it's very interesting to see where people come from and how they approach the game uh, to move forward. And, you know, some people have the, are very well intended, but they're kind of doing the wrong things. Um, some coaches are very well intended, but they're telling their fighters to do the wrong things. So I think it's important to uh, educate the fighters and the coaches. A lot of the, one of the things I do is I, I do a lot of writing. I've written for Last Sport on Sports and uh, MMA Sucker, and right now I'm writing for Bloody Elbow. And I do a lot about uh, uh, developing skills, improving performance, the you know uh, uh, putting together good fight camps, which I call smart camps, and really how to coach in a way that brings out the best in the fighters. So it's important to help you know help to educate folks so they don't do the wrong things so a lot of times they're not doing the right things and they're actually hurting the performance instead of helping it so explain to me the um like natural body mechanics like what's that all about and how you sort of improve that and work with that what is it oh, for starters well, <laughs> well well interesting i'm actually doing an article right now with a good friend of mine nick green he's a phd student at a university of florida um, and uh, when we talk about, it's called uh, uh, Fight Science, uh, the, the Coach and the Fighter Responsibilities. So it's going to be a, like a three-part article. Um, but, you know, it's like a coach has a responsibility to the fighter, but also the fighter has the responsibility to the coach. But the, this first article is about really how to coach and how, um, uh, how a, lot of, a lot of fighters and coaches want to kind of 
get in there and do like the show combination, like bah, 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 moving their head and they're doing this fancy combination. Um, but the analogy I make is that if you don't have fundamental skills in place, like these basic prerequisites, it's like pulling back an arrow, right? It's like an archer shooting for a target. And if it's even slightly off at the very beginning, it's going to miss the target by a wide you know, range. So these fundamental skills, these prerequisites, these little, these little pieces like shifting your weight forward and backwards, right? Making sure that your weight is distributing well, um, making sure your posture is not too far forward, making sure your shoulders aren't shrugged too high, uh, making sure that your heel is slightly raised up on the back foot so you get a good pivot. All these things are uh, really fundamental to building component skills uh, and then composite skills. Uh, because if you don't have those small pieces right, everything else is impacted. It has a ripple effect across your whole game. So um, you really have to be able to focus on those things. And to your, your question, it's like, well, what are those things? A lot of people don't even think about those. I, I, I see and I've worked with them, you know, with these fighters that have trained all over the world. And they come back and I look at videos and I see, man, you know, this guy's missing this small thing that is actually impacting all his other game. Like, you know, they're, they're not getting good power because they're not rotating their hips, right? They're not turning their shoulders enough. They're not snapping their punch in the right way. So it's these small things that really separate elite fighters, uh, you know, when you get into uh, that level of the game. It's strange because the attention to detail that you have must be like next to perfection. Do you know what I mean? To be able to go in there and sort of look at someone and, just analyze like the smallest detail like bro you're not lifting your your heel it's not gonna yeah happen. you know your pivoting's not gonna be great well that's right that is exactly right and uh you know here's what we know from the science of human behavior is that people tend to be poor observers of their own behavior they tend to be poor observers of the behaviors of others and they tend to be poor observers of the impact of their behavior on others so uh you know people like I can look at the same guy and you look at the same guy uh, doing something and we won't see the same thing. Uh, in, in this case, you know, because I just happen to have, you know, 25 years in the game and analyzing these small things. But um, I don't know what your background is or what you do, but certainly, you know, it, it, whatever you're fluent in and whatever you've, you know, had a lot of experience in, you could look at that and see a totally different thing. So. Um, it really takes a long time in the game and understanding the details. And again, having the having the lens of the science of human behavior uh, really helps to what we call task analyze, break down larger steps into very small steps. So those things, because maybe maybe eight of the ten steps are good for throwing a cross, right? So if you think about throwing a right cross, well, what does that entail? Well, your stance has to be right. Your posture has to be right. You have to be slightly raised on the heel. Your guard's got to be in the right place. you got to rotate the hand when it goes down. Um, you got to return your stance after throwing the right hand. You got Your shoulders got to uh, adjust accordingly or rotate accordingly along with the core. Um, so there are all these pieces that it seems like all, all other people are seeing is the right hand throw out, but man, there's a lot of pieces to it. So what part of that is not working right? Because if there's any piece that's not working right, it's very much like a car. Hey, the wheels might be on it. Uh, you might have good rims. Maybe the carburetor is working well, but like the fan belt's off. I don't know much about cars, you know, but if there's one piece off, the whole car, the performance is going to be impacted right down to the fuel you put in it, which comes down to your nutrition, you know, and your conditioning. All these pieces are going to impact the performance of the fighter. It's very important to understand those. Give me one second because I've got to let my cat out, man. He's doing my head in. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, brother.
Yo. Hey, <laughs> man. Um, so, yeah. your business. Um, the acronym COACH, what does it stand for? Because obviously I read on your, I want to say your Facebook page that you was talking about the acronym COACH and break that down for me. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I wrote that article a while back. Let me think about it. So I think it's uh, communicating. Do you have it in front of you? No, it's communicating, no. it's observing, it's a front, it's a, it's a, Affirming, um, it's uh, it's helping. Essentially, it's breaking down. The, there's here are the four keys to any kind of performance change. Uh, first of all, you have to be able to pinpoint very specific skills um, of somebody. Like when I say pinpoint, like you know, you can't just say you need to throw the right cross. What does the right cross mean? You can't say that you need to distribute your weight appropriately. What does that mean behaviorally? How do you tell somebody to do that? You know. Well, how do you break down and task analyze those uh, components? Then you, of course, have to be able to observe, observe it. So how do we observe? You know, is it the coach looking uh, at the fighter when they're training? Is it during during sparring? Is it video feedback, which is a, a critical piece, a critical piece of training? Um, if you are in, in, in football, uh, for example, the professional sports, uh, a third of their training time is actually uh, dedicated towards watching video, right? Studying video. But in the fight game, people will just watch a fight of their opponent and they don't watch fight of themselves or training of themselves. And they're missing really gold nuggets of uh, training. So how can you create situations where you can observe yourself more, coach can observe yourself more? Because now you have to be able to give uh, affirmation, right? So what am I doing right? Uh, and also that's the A in the coach and also uh, the C is how do I correct that right so you got to be able to have all those pieces in place um, so you can actually improve performance and the last piece of that is uh, the H is the, the helping um, it's simply like alright if I give you feedback I'm not sure if you ever work for a boss that has not been very nice you know you need to do this or you need to do that they might be trying to help you but if they say it to you or presenting it to you that way how are you going to take it not very good you know if they're yeah it's, it's about you know putting it across in a positive way rather than like yo dick face you're fucking doing it wrong you piece of shit and you're like well fuck you then <laughs> Do you know what I mean? well well no that that's that's you are exactly right and what the science tells us is that we call that negative reinforcement so if you do something for fear of consequences because you don't want to get in trouble that does not bring out the best in people. What brings out the best in people, what we call discretionary effort going above and beyond, is getting them in touch with positive reinforcement. And you can do that through positive affirmations. That doesn't mean just saying you did a good job, right? You have to help fighters see the positive impact of what they're doing. So one of the things that's lacking in, uh, in combat sports in general, and I'm actually was very fortunate to just get interviewed by uh, some of the folks at Georgia Tech on uh, uh, biometrics. Um, is that we have very little measures in the sport. Brad was actually ahead of the game, man. He would always wear heart rate measures, and that was good. He can watch his conditioning improve, which is huge. But something as simple as, like, if I were training you right now, and I said, I want you to throw the cross this way, and I want you to do this thing with your hip and this thing with your back foot, right? Turn your shoulders this way. And you did it. 
how do you know that saying I said if you do it, it's going to actually here's the outcome you're going to get you're going to get more power how do you know you're actually getting power right mm-hmm. it might feel that way but you don't really know but if, if there was a measure if I said all right do it your way and you saw that you got 700 pounds per square inch I'm just throwing that number out there I don't know uh, and I said I want you to do it this way and you see that you got did 850 pounds per square inch what's what are you going to be more likely to do in the future the, your old way or the new way your new way every time that's exactly right so part of it is getting people in touch with reinforcement reinforcement can be me saying you're doing a good job right but the, the main goal is you being able to observe the positive impact of your behavior because there's not a lot of measurement out there a lot of it is like you know people don't really know so they'll fall back on their old habits so it's important to get them in touch with that positive reinforcement helping them by using some sort of measurement by helping the fighter observe the positive impact of their behavior in the environment and one of the easy ways is to do this is by setting small goals if you set small goals for people help the fighter set small goals they can actually reach those goals so therefore it's reinforcing if like they say in business there's large goals set people will continue to fall short of that and that's very demoralizing right Mm. setting small goals helps to shape behavior and that actually accelerates performance i can't i can't change everything about a fighter at one time but i can change that pivot i can change that hip movement i can change that slip and the the head getting offline just enough so eventually these things combine and they can see the positive impact of the behavior i.e i get hit less Uh, I'm able to get my punch off more. Oh, look, I'm actually starting to win a minute of this round. Oh, I'm not winning two minutes of this round. Oh, I'm winning rounds now during sparring and such, you know, or I can feel my punches are coming off easier. I'm not as fatigued. I can hear the snap that's louder. So you got to get them in touch with those uh, environmental uh, impacts. So they will continue to do it even in the absence of the coach. Yeah. I mean, it's the same for like personal training for me. Um, sort of my clientele if their techniques are a little bit off they're not feeling it like maybe so legs for example when they're training their legs their technique may be off and they're like oh, i don't feel it in my quads or my glutes and i'm like okay well let's change your technique and see if you feel it more and then they change their technique they feel it more and then they're like stick with that technique because now they know that it's working the muscle you know they can well that's exactly right so and that's well, the that's, positive reinforcement behind it. It's like, oh, okay, I'll do it like this from now on then. Well, that's right. And that is if they want to feel it for them, if that's a positive reinforcer, right? Mm-hmm. Feeling it. But but that would be like a sh- – what we would call that would be a leading indicator, right? So, hey, I can feel it's uh, – I can feel that it's uh, burning in this in this area and that's a good thing because I know in the end the ultimate goal is I'm trying to build muscle, right? I'm trying to uh, – I look better. I'm trying to get leaner, and you have measures for that. People get on the, they get on the scale, and they can see their weight going down or up, whatever they want. You have measurements where they're taking the shoulder size, the arm size. You have fat percentage measurement. You have all these different measures which you can use as feedback to your clientele, which then becomes a reinforcer. So now they want to continue doing the things that you have been showing them, and that also pairs you with that reinforcement. So they're like, hey, this guy really knows what he's doing. Uh, let me continue with this. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, perfect sense. In the fight yeah. game, is um, what's like is the the measurements a lot more difficult in the sense of like you said with the punching power or, or the leg kicks. How how is all that measured or movements? Well, you know. Well, that's that's the deal. That therein lays the elephant in the room. So you have all these other sports: basketball, football, 
um, even soccer, that have uh, have evolved their training methods over time. But if you look at an old picture from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, uh, uh, or any video and compare it to now, not much has changed. You'll see a, a fighter hitting the bag. You know, if you're looking at jujitsu, you're you're going to see some mats. You know, the the common measurement is how many miles have been run. Uh, you know, how many rounds have been sparred. Maybe some fighters are actually using some heart rate monitors, but that's the problem is that there's no measurement being used. So really, uh, there's no precision in what's going on in most gyms, and there can be. And that's why the, that's why the Georgia Tech folks were interviewing me the other day. Um, they do have some things on the market, but one of the issues is precision. And the other issue is that people are like, they're stuck in old ways or stuck in old mm -hmm. habits. And I could even go back. Do you, you remember Rocky Four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So Rocky Four. I thought about doing an article on Rocky Four, right? So you got two guys training. You got the big Russian. who They were using a lot of measurement. And they were doing all these things that were right. And you had Rocky, and he was out there doing all sorts of cool things. But he was lifting logs. He was lifting cars. He was running up the hills. How did he know he was getting better as a result of that, right? What measurement was going on? I mean, he might have just lucked into doing the right thing because people can easily, very easily overtrain uh, by doing what the right thing, doing it too much. Um, so uh, people don't know. It's the fact is that sometimes it's just getting lucky. Sometimes it's like, hey, do this right hand and they get in the, – throw the right hand this way and they try it one time. And it lands and it works, right? So they happen to get in touch with that positive reinforcement, so they're going to keep doing it. But if I show you how to do a right hand, and the first time you get in there and you do it, and you get cracked with a, a counter left or something like that, you're going to fall back on your old habits because you don't believe that's worked. Where the real deal is, I should have never thrown you in there using this skill to begin with. At this point, what I should have done was develop the skill outside of the ring, maybe put you under what I call prescriptive sparring where, hey, this guy is only going to throw this one punch and you can, you know, you can slip and throw your own shoe or whatever it might be. Uh, and now you're getting some measurement on the outside where the coach is getting some sort of feedback. It's not hard measurement, it's soft measurement, but you're helping the fighters see that, hey, you're getting the right hand off better. Can you feel that your weight is distributed uh, uh, more uh, because you can come back with the hook? Or, or uh, did you notice when we did the prescriptive sparring that you were landing the right hand more often? And then we started to gradually release that so they can do it during large uh, live sparring. But to come back to the initial question, it's a huge issue in combat sports. That is lack of measurement. I, man, if I could get somebody to fund me, I want to start a fight science gym. If you can imagine fighters coming through to get like an assessment, almost like a psychological assessment, but it's not. It's just about where the performance is and take all sorts of measures and give them write a prescription, all right? Hey, here's where your weight's distributed. Here's how much power you're getting. Here's how much your core's rotation. If, if you do this, that, and the other, this will likely improve your game. Oh, you're fighting this opponent. Here's something you can do for a taller opponent versus a shorter opponent. Um, but, you know, a lot of measurement is lacking. And a lot of old school guys don't want to do it because they believe we shouldn't be doing that stuff. But it's not true. Measurement will actually help with the precision. It'll help from keep people being overtrained. It will help them from getting injured. It will really improve their performance but quickly, quickly. It's strange because you'd think, like, <clears throat> you want to you wanna fucking measure what you're doing because then you see improvement. It's like the main fundamental of that is like you constantly want to improve if you want to compete against top level fighters, top level sprinters, whatever it is. You know, you need that measurement of time, distance, power, whatever. 
That's right. To, to then be like, okay, well, this is what I need to improve on, so I become more well-rounded and you know better at the game. Well, man, that is that is right. That is absolutely right. And and then once you have the once you have measures in place, you also need a coach that knows how to use those measures. So um, I do a lot of public speaking. Um, one of the one of the analogies I make, I, I talk about leadership and coaching a lot. Um, the first day I walked into a boxing gym, I was thrown into the ring with the professional fighters. Like I, I can remember, uh, you know, climbing through the through the, through the ring. And uh, you ever see that movie Mad Max Beyond uh, Thunderdome, where they're in the cage? Oh Lord, I'm dating myself. Anyway, so there's a chant they do. It goes, two men enter, one man leaves. Two men enter, one man leaves." Well. Two men entered and one man left and with a broken nose. And, of course, that was me. I w- should have never been in the ring with a professional fighter. It's ridiculous. Hmm. Uh, but, I, but I came back day after day to take a beating. And, you know, people are looking at it, It's like Darwinism, right, natural selection process. Um, but for, for me, in my life at the time, I needed this. But you think about it. How many potential world champions walk through a boxing gym uh, door or the mixed martial arts uh, door? to the room and were thrown in with a fighter that they shouldn't have been in and they took a beating never to come back thinking that they didn't have what it takes where that's not true they were just thrown in the conditions that they shouldn't have been in and that were so punishing they're like oh i don't want to do this um you could be a great fighter man you know but if i throw you into the cage right now with a professional fighter and he beats your butt you're like yeah this isn't for me well the coach should have never done that to you it is for anybody you just have to understand how to shape performance to how to shape self-efficacy or confidence do you think uh, mentality plays a part? Like I feel for my mentality, if you chucked me in there with a pro fighter and I got the shit beaten out of me, that's how I would learn. Was like I'd want to go back and try again and adapt my style or my movement and try and work them out a bit more, maybe not rush them as quick. Do you know what I mean? So for me, maybe that would be like I would happily take a beating again just to try and progress like that a little bit more. Like oh, I went two rounds this time rather than being tapped out in 30 seconds. Sure. Well, so if you if you have that history, right? So people think you're like born tough, and that's not true, man. You know, your your toughness, your self-efficacy, your your belief in your ability to accomplish something is developed through progressively having some success and then being able to delay that gratification. What if you went to the ring? Let's say you get thrown in the ring, and uh, for three months, you know, like you're just taking a beating every day. Taking a beating, bloody noses, you're hurt, people are, you can't move, you know, eventually if you don't get in touch with some sort of reinforcement, like you're feeling some sort of excess, everybody's going to stop. That's the law of human behavior, you know, so it depends on what is reinforcing to you. If you like taking a beating and that feels good to you for whatever reason, because it makes you feel good to be able to survive, then you might stick with it, you know, so what's reinforcing in one person's what is not reinforcing another, but I could take you to, to, forms of you one that is uh has the ability to maybe take a beating a little bit and look for even the smallest thing or a guy that's not confident at all and i can accelerate your performance equally uh depending on what conditions i put you in but there's no reason for you to take a beating why get in there and lose brain cells like that why that's not a reason train the skills first right and slowly progressively put you in a situation through prescriptive sparring and then full sparring but that's not the way it goes somebody will show you how to throw a jab you're going to get in the ring and maybe try to use it. If that doesn't work, you're going to fall back on what your basic survival habits are and you'll get really good at something really bad because it's working for you under those kind of conditions. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, massively. Um, going back to sort of assessing like performance <coughs> uh, measurements, in the fight game, I suppose the best way 
currently, in my opinion, is rewatching the fight back. So you've coached them on uh, striking and just that, like moving the head off the centre line. And then they go in the ring and they're executing this. And you kind of compare like that fight to their previous fight where they were taking more shots down the middle because they weren't moving their head out to then the new fight where they're not getting strike, uh, hit as much. Do you know what I mean? Is that like something that people can use as a, an analysis, like footwork, pivoting, power, knockouts? Do you know what I mean? A- absolutely. Here would be the issue if you only use fights is that they're just too far apart mm. to ac- accelerate performance in between, right? This is why, like, I always ask my fighters, I'm like, send me video, send me video. If I can't be there, send me video. Then I can pinpoint things. I can see even the smallest nuance. And now we can compare it from training session to training session so we can actually actively shape the behavior. Every time somebody goes into a training session, every time they go into a spar, they should have a goal. But a lot of these guys, they have like a, they just don't have the right mentality. They need to be helped with. They need to be coached better because they get in there and they, their whole thing is I'm going to beat my opponent. Well, you need to have a goal when you go in there. Like, what are you working on? You know, being in there should be like a laboratory. You should be learning. You should be getting better at some skill. And if it's defense, what part of the fence and how do you know you're getting better at it? Um, So, yeah, man, video, video feedback. There's a ton of research behind it. And it just makes sense. You know, you're able to stop it, roll it back. There's there's a there's an app called Coach's Eye where you can slow motion things and roll it back and forward. And I can see the slightest thing and if if i show you something i might have it in my mind's eye but if you can see it and i can point it out to you circle it in the video and say listen look at your foot here and look at your foot there i want you to do more of this stuff and then you remind yourself before you get into the the, the, the cage the coach is saying hey don't forget the pivot on that back foot we can even do a frequency count on it. Hey, you did this many times. Every time you pivoted, that meant you got more power. That meant that you were setting up your hook better because your weight was distributed. Whatever it is that's being worked on. But video analysis, video assessment really helps fighters to do it. And nobody's doing it. In combat sports, a, a handful of people are doing it. In other professional sports, you see it all the time. Mm. So um, <clears throat> how do you deal with, say, people's egos? Because obviously... Some people come in and probably think they they know a lot of it. How do you sort of take them down a peg, or do you know what I mean? Like, there's people yeah. who come in and you're like, okay, well, we need to do this. You need to do this to learn better. And they're like, well, I've won my last eight fights. <laughs> do you know yeah. What I mean? Oh, I, I, I trust me, I've had it happen. Uh, well, one of the things that is that I'm very fortunate in that uh, I, I, I because of the science of human behavior, I've been able to classify the fight, it's striking style at least, into three classifications, what I call short range, mid range, and long range, right? So where a lot of coaches train you based on their style, I train fighters based on the style that's going to best fit them. So a, a very easy analogy, do you think Mike Tyson would have been successful if he fought like Muhammad Ali and vice versa? No. <laughs> no. That's right, because you have very, and they were both heavyweights, right? Mm. And in fact, they're around the same weight, but you have very different body styles. So um, you have to train people based on their genetic makeup, right? Genetic predisposition. And you also have to train them based on uh, their opponent, right? What is the strategic plan? You might be the taller guy a lot in a fight, um, but if you happen to fight a taller guy, your range no longer becomes an asset to you. Uh, I think a great example of this if uh, that I use this in my writing is uh, when Nate Diaz fought uh, Donald Cerrone. Did you, did you ever see that fight? Uh, it was a bit of a war, wasn't it? Quite, quite 
quite it, a while it was, ago as well. Yeah, it was a while ago. But the thing is that both these guys are taller fighters in their weight class. And in this particular fight, which I, I believe that Donald Cerrone is the more skilled striker, but Nate Diaz is uses his reach and footwork better than, than Cerrone. So Cerrone's punches were missing Diaz by like an inch, two inches. But in, in the fight games, particularly the striking game, we work in millimeters, man, just barely missing. So if Cerrone, because he had a very, what I call a mid-range game, very upright posture, you see a lot of Muay Thai guys do it, and they stand right in front of you and they catch and they throw. If he would understand how to slip in just a little bit to counter one of uh, Diaz's straight punches, it might have been a very different outcome. So you have to understand those pieces of it. So when I approach the game, what I'll say to somebody is like, man, I'd like that you're doing this. I'll find out all the things that they're doing right. Listen, you're pivoting on your hips. You're turning your shoulders. You know, uh, I'd like to snap on your punch. Okay. To make it better, here's what I would suggest the next thing is. So I'm not going to say they're doing something wrong because usually what they're doing fits in one of my style classifications. It's just like, hey, does this make sense? You're going to be fighting a, a longer opponent to this in this example. Uh, in the past, you've been a longer opponent, but you he, this guy has a longer reach, so we're going to want to use a little bit of head movement. So I always start with the why. Good coaches start with the why. You know, I don't just say do as I say. You know, um, here's why. Here's what you're doing right. Here's why it's going to be better for you. And then I show them, and it's usually not a problem. Very rarely has been a problem. When I've taken that approach. Do you think Nate Diaz is quite underrated in the UFC? What I mean by that is like he's exciting, he's got long fucking reach, dangly legs, he's been in some tear-ups, marathon guy, he's got quite a good skill set. No, I think I think he gets the credit he deserves. Um, I don't think he's underrated. I think he gets good credit. I think he's done a lot with uh, with his skill set. I mean, they have that you know stopped and slap thing where they're what what they are masters of. Nate and Nick is distance. They understand how to relax their shoulders and capitalize on their distance. So I teach a style which is called long range. It's like being a sniper. And your defense literally is keeping people at the end of your punches. So you're keeping them very long. So when they try to counter you, they miss the punches. You don't even have to have your hold your hands high. Counter to what a lot of coaches will tell you, keep your hands high. Well, you know, sometimes that's true and sometimes not. I can go through history and show you a bunch of guys that kept their hands low and were quite successful. In fact, a good example of this is uh, John Jones. John Jones is a great fighter. He keeps his hands too high. He has a superior reach. When you relax your shoulders and keep your hands lower and out in front of you a little bit, you're, you, you get greater distance. Your jab and your punches are more relaxed. Um, and also your hands have to travel a third of the distance, sometimes only half the distance to make contact. And one of the reasons why – uh, Gustafsson gave John Jones a hard time is because uh, Gustafsson understood footwork and he understood the appropriate uh, guard for a long range style. So he was capitalizing on his length and lateral movement much better than John Jones was. Not because he's a better fighter, but because he knows how to apply his reach and distance better than Jones does. It's a shame, man, with John Jones, really. I, I don't know what to say, man. You know, it's, I, I, it's what can you say? <laughs> it is a shame, man. It's it's kind of like um, some people are just bad boys, you know. <laughs> just, man, you know, I he's know. A, man. He's a good guy, like nice guy, but he's just made some shit life choices. Like no doubt, he's he's a nice guy to meet and chat with or whatever. But still, you, you know, you got you you could be a successful fucking UFC legend in the mm -hmm. making, so much potential, and 
you go and fuck your career up basically another four years ban or whatever he's looking at strange well i i think it's one of those things man where you know you could debate whether steroids helps you or not it could be helpful it could be harmful you know it puts a lot of stress on your ligaments it puts water weight on you you know it might make you stronger but where do you need to be stronger at uh, you know, it could be simply as correlation is not causation. So John Jones has been successful with that formula. So maybe his mind psychologically, oh, I need to take this so I can be successful. Where had he never taught, t- took it and he applied the right style and did the right things, he probably would have been more successful. So, you know, it's a shame when fighters, you know, have to use this. But I think it's a lot more common than, you know, than, than, than people believe. I believe you either need to test for it and do it all out or just do away with it you know you, you can't kind of have to do it because then people find ways around it you know i've got a suspicion that conor mcgregor's on the gear mate yeah, <laughs> his, yeah. Weight, his weight just fluctuates so much like and he's just like i'm having six months i'm not fighting and then suddenly he comes back and he's just like bulky looking good meeting this way and then i'm just like six months off that's enough to get shit out of your system you're all blessed bro Dana White's fucking Dana White's boy, you know, look the other way. Yeah. <laughs> Just you never know, man. Like, obviously it's a conspiracy. I'm I'm not hundred percent saying that. I'm just fucking theorizing and having a laugh with it. But at the end of the day you never know, you know. I've seen him bulk out quite a lot and then trim down and it's just, you know, a man that fluctuates that much in weight and still looks good. <clears throat> It, it would not surprise me one bit as i said i think it's it's much more prevalent in all sports than what most people believe so you're working at um american top teams all right so i've been with american top team since uh 2004 uh when uh, actually roger crawls american top team sunrise it was used to be called uh, the wolf pack uh paired up with american top team um, and uh, I moved up to uh, uh, the Port St. Lucie area and started working with uh, Dean Thomas's team, at American Top Team Port St. Lucie. And then there was uh, other satellite gyms, American Top Team Vero and American Top Team St. Lucie West that I worked with, um, which have now converted to what's called a legacy martial arts. But I still make the trip down to the main academy, the American Top Team headquarters to work with uh, some of the higher levels. But for a while back in the you know, 2008, 2009 through, you know, this is actually how I met Brad. Um, so a lot of those guys would come up to work with me because my striking style is one of the, one of the styles people love, uh, especially for a short range guy is what I call it, uh, control chaos. It's like peekaboo for uh, mixed martial arts, like Mike Tyson style. It's something that drew uh, Brad to me initially, I believe. Um, I trained a guy named uh, Luigi Fioravanti and we went to Italy and, uh, he used his style and knocked his opponent out in the, the first or second round. I can't remember. Um, but it's a fun style. It's a style that my guy, Kenny Duscarner, used to get the M1 Global Heavyweight Champion of the World. Uh, he, he maintained that for almost three years and with, with really subpar training, but it's very aggressive, a lot of head movement. So so a lot of the guys want to learn how to fight like Tyson, and some of the guys are like, no, this, this style is really not for you because you're a tall guy. You're better off using the range. But again, I can... I can train different folks using different styles and that kind of makes sense to them, you know? Yeah. So you watched the Canelo uh, Golovkin fight. I did. Yeah, I did. Yep. And uh, I was shocked. People have wanted you to um, break it down or saw on on your Facebook. So I'm going to set the stage for you and let you get the ball rolling and give me your, your opinions and breakdowns on that fight and what you think 
you know, why he was yeah. shipped, etc. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I would say, first of all, I really like uh, Canelo's style. His punches are clean, man. They look aesthetically. They're like, uh, they're just lovely to see, you know. He does a great job. But I think really what the – and you can look at the fight stats. They were relatively even, but you have to be careful with fight stats because a bunch of punches can be accrued in one round, right? Let's say a guy threw a 10-round fight and a guy threw 200 punches in one round and only 20 in all the other rounds. Well, it might look like now that he's thrown 50 punches around, which is, you know, just not – or 40 punches around, which is just not true. Um, but it, it, what I believe the difference maker was – it was Triple G's uh, aggression. He dictated the pace of the fight. And it for me, it felt that Triple G was fighting to win and Canelo was fighting to not lose. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. He was more defensive and sort of, you know, not doing enough for me. Yeah, I mean, like, listen, you can be a great counterpuncher. Uh, you know, I think... Probably if you went back, take a look at a fight by uh, Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard, which is still debated to this day. Uh, and Marvin Hagler, very much like a Triple G, was very aggressive moving forward. Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard ended up winning the fight, but he was using a lot of lateral movement and really countering well. He didn't just put his back on the rope and just, you know, just kind of take 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 you know be very defensive and not counter much and he was doing that a lot in this fight you know it didn't look like he was countering aggressively to me i mean he did have some good counters don't get me wrong but it wasn't enough to win the rounds you know and and it was just it was it was the pace that triple g was setting he was dictating which way uh canelo was moving canelo was you know using a lot of lateral lateral movement not to set up offense one of the core my core philosophies is always finish with defense and always use your defense to the offense. He was simply using his defense to get the heck out of the way so he didn't get cracked by Triple G, you know? Really almost like running laterally, not using it to, to strategically for offense. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, when uh, Canelo was against the ropes, he was always sort of shifting out up to the left, I think, or to the right every time, you know, there's like a few punches thrown and then he'd get out and I heard Canelo's corner like extend your extend your um, right hand you know get him with you know throw it more like a hook to try and clip him because every time he was getting out I just don't think he um, it's hard to explain because obviously like the stats were the stats at the end of the day and like you said they can be misleading but I just for me I just think Golovkin was a clear winner like he just looked more positive more forward through you know powerful shots and just looked like, like you said, he just looked like he wanted to win rather than Canelo was kind of just against the ropes, kind of just didn't want to lose, like getting out of there, not really throwing much back. Even he, even he didn't believe he won that fight. His body language at the end was such that he's like, I lost this fight, you know? I mean, and the thing is, the, the question is, why... Why did that happen? Right? Maybe you can make a case for the even see because that the even because six rounds, six, maybe somebody, you know, the judge prefers a certain style, which I still don't believe. I believe that Triple G won the fight. But to only have Triple G winning two rounds, is that complete incompetence? Or is that somebody's put money in this judge's pocket because they want to rematch? Because clearly the rematch, and it's gonna happen, is gonna make a lot of money, you know. I mean Oscar De La Hoya was tweeting out immediately, who wants to see the rematch? You know, I, I you know, it's just it's it's crazy, man. It's crazy. It probably wouldn't have got a rematch regardless, but it, it here was boxing who, you know, we were 
Every, I felt that the McGregor, uh, you know, the McGregor Mayweather fight was a farce. It should have never happened. I, you know, I wrote a, a long article on it six months before, really calling exactly what happened in the fight. It was like a circus show to me, and it was a way for boxing to kind of show, like, hey, here's what real boxing is. And then this happens, another black eye for boxing. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, the fight for Canelo and GGG was good. Like, I enjoyed watching it. But when you've got a judge that scores it 118 to 110, I think she got it as for Canelo. I'm sitting there thinking, what the fuck are you watching? Like, you know, I'm just like thinking, how can you call it like that? Like, you know, I don't know. But Canelo, at the end, he's like saying that he kind of stood there and fought and traded with him a bit and that he thought he should have won. And I'm just thinking, no, you did it, mate. You're rubbing your hands that this got called a draw. Yeah, yeah, and it's unfortunate because I mean Canelo's coming into his prime, and we got Triple G, and he's thirty-five years old. So the longer the rematch it is, the more it kind of falls into Canelo's, you know, wheelhouse. Uh, theoretically, you know, we'll see. You know, if it, if it, this is one of those deals where if if Triple G is having a smart camp, you know, and doing and using measurement and doing everything right. And Canelo just getting there and banging and sparring, you know, fighters can age fast. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens in the rematch, but I'm certain there will be one. I mean, with the, um, I agree with you on the McGregor Mayweather fight as well. It's like, for me, watching it, it just looked like a charity match. Yeah. Like, that's the best way I can describe it. It was like watching a charity event. It was like watching me go in there with a professional boxer and him going, uh, do you know what? I'm going to let this little guy punch me against the ropes a little bit and make it look like I'm struggling so the fans get all excited. But it's not even bothering me, you know? And I was just thinking, really? Is this what we've come to? People, Conor McGregor's like, I turned him into a Mexican. And I'm thinking... He didn't really do anything. It's just Floyd just wanted to, you know, walk forward and tie you out. <laughs> well, and I think it's, he also he wanted to walk forward because he there was no threat. McGregor, from what I saw, only landed one significant punch, and that was that uppercut. That was the only significant punch he landed in the whole fight. Uh, Mayweather is a safety first fighter, man, and he walked forward because he's like, all right, this guy's awkward, and uh, I, I'm not afraid of his punches. I mean, he was, and this is this is what I wrote about in my article. I mean, there's there's no way with with the thousands and thousands of rounds of uh, and hundreds of thousands of hours of deliberate practice that Mayweather has put into boxing, you're just going to be able to throw things effortlessly, uh, and so you're going to be able to go a distance. You know exactly how much energy to expend, and of course, McGregor is going to expend more energy because he has to divide up his training time and all the other elements of mixed martial arts. So it's not that McGregor's not a great fighter. He's just not a great boxer. He's not even a good boxer. Uh, any boxer, any hungry boxer that fought a four-round fight with him, uh, probably a guy with 10 fights would annihilate him inside of four rounds, annihilate him. Somebody that was just offensive, they would just eat him up. He would not survive. It's a shame um, for, for boxing's kind of legacy. It's a shame that Conor McGregor was fight, fighting Floyd Mayweather who kind of just wanted to, not like a charade because he didn't really do much, but if you could imagine Conor McGregor in there with a Canelo, a Golovkin, a fucking Sugar Ray <laughs> Leonard or whatever, a Tommy Hearns, you know, it's over in round one and they're just going, yes. you disrespectful little bastard coming over here, like this is why boxing is boxing. 
And for me, obviously, Floyd was just in it for the money and, like you said, I just walking onto the shots, you know? Yeah, and I almost suspect, you know, he tried to, uh, I heard that he tried to make a bet on himself, uh, you know, the over-under, and I think it was like over 10 rounds or whatever it was, he went just above that number, and they actually rescinded his request to make a bet because you can't bet on yourself in sports, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't have somebody else make the bet. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it just seems very odd that he turned it up at such a level. I mean, I know McGregor had progressed him and tired, but honestly, he was tired after the fourth round. I could see in his posture. You could see in his pitter-patter punches. Those punches were not – they're not threatening at all. Any boxer can walk through those things and just drop heavy leather on you. So I almost think he carried them. It was like being um, tapped by a cat, you know? Captain yeah, Claws is just patting yeah. your eyes. And, uh, yes, man. I agree. I mean, my friend come and watched the fight with me, and he's like a boxing fanatic. And after the fourth round, he was just like, what's Mayweather doing? Like, he could finish him off. And boxers, they throw four or five punches together. Mayweather was just throwing ones and twos and carried him around a bit and taking a few shots, and then they were cuddling, and he was throwing <laughs> ones and twos. And, then, like, you know, the tenth round is probably when Mayweather just started to storm forward a bit and throw, you know, three, four punches, try and, you know, con consecutively to try and beat him and did. And I was just thinking, Mayweather basically went from 5% to 20% and won the fight. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, that's exactly what happened, man. So it just, it leads you, hey, but you know what? Props to them both. They went out and got paid at the end of the day. They got people excited about it, you know, so I'm not, I'm not hating on for that. I just want to see, I love mixed martial arts in my sports. I've been in both sports. I don't want to, I always felt, almost felt like uh, boxing was being disrespected by thinking that a mixed martial artist could come in there and be, you know, superior to one of the greatest, at least defensive fighters of all time. So, and then I was also very frustrated seeing all these kind of armchair, you know, boxing experts come out and swear they knew what was going to happen like man i can't you know like actually debating it and uh, you know have fun with it hope for it you know wish it might happen be excited about it but like you know like people were actually debating with me well i didn't even, i just stopped debating like i'm not going to argue with me you you know it's like silly i've been doing this for 25 years and you're you know what i mean uh, you know it was just it was silly i'm glad it's done i hope it doesn't happen again yeah, it's kind of like these people that were trying to debate. It's like, what are your credentials, mate? Yeah. <laughs> what are your yeah. credentials? And you're trying to tell me, like, I've been in this spot for 25 years. I'm training fighters. Trust me, I know what I'm going on about. And you sit at home watching a few boxing matches and a few UFC matches, and you're like, Conor McGregor's power, mate. It's going to destroy Floyd Mayweather. So, uh, trust me, it's not. <laughs> not even close. I, I don't get it, man, but that's okay, man. I had a good laugh with it. <laughs> what do you think um, sort of Golovkin did well in the Canelo-Golovkin fight? Like, Why do you think he was so successful with his... Because, I mean, in the first few rounds, it was a little bit of figuring out, you know. Uh, Golovkin didn't look his usual self. Yeah, well, I think he's a smart fighter, you know. One of the things that he does well is that, like, here's the difference stylistically is that when Canelo throws punches... He throws for the fence, right? Tyson did this, and I—that's part of what I teach fighters when they're using the short range. If you're gonna, if you're gonna work your way inside, and you're gonna let, you know, you're gonna take that kind of danger, you're gonna let your punch go hard, you know. One of uh, uh, Triple G's uh, strengths is that he knows how to pop, 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 boom, boom, pop, 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 boom, boom, pop, boom, pop, 
pop, pop, pop. He knows how to kind of uh, put together combos and just win the turn up when we're not. And of course, the use of his jab is masterful. Um, he knows how to try to just get out of the way and use his range very effectively. Um, but man, you know, he's, he's a master defensively and he's mastered with the jab. So I think, uh, that and his, the pressure and being able to anticipate, uh, Canelo's counters are what, you know, uh, what at the end of the day helped him win the fight. And I, I thought he was going to win. I, I suspected it was going to be a good fight. And to be honest with you, um, I, I kind of had wanted Canelo to win, uh, not because I'm a, a fan of Canelo any more than I am Triple G, but Mexico has like a long storied history of uh, Mexican fighters, and they take a lot of pride in their fighting. And um, it just almost feels like Canelo holds his country on his back. I'm not saying that Triple G doesn't. It's just that they don't have that storied history, you know. So part of me wanted Canelo to win for the uh, for his fans and for the people of Mexico. Um, but you know, the fact is, uh, he, he didn't, I, what I would have loved to seen was like what they started to do in the last couple of rounds where they started to go toe to toe. I think that's what everybody was hoping to see. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it might've been a different outcome in that. It, the question is, could, uh, <clears throat> could Canelo keep up that pace, uh, for that long? Because he does everything he throws is very hard. And, and it seems that, um, triple G is just kind of the master of, uh, being able to throw just the right amount at the right time. Strange as well, because obviously Canelo's the younger guy, so you'd think it would suit him better to stand there and go toe-to-toe -to -toe and throw bombs and be like, well, you're going to gas before me, mate, because I'm younger, fitter, you know, I'm going to hit just as hard as you, we've both got good chins, let's go for it, and yet you kind of saw the complete opposite from Canelo. I mean, obviously he's he's a great counter-puncher, so we tried to play that way, but, you know, I think yeah. he should have utilised his energy systems more. Right, right. And I think he actually his best moments were when he got Canelo or when he got Triple G into a uh, brawl. It seemed to me, I'd have to re, you know, review the fight again, but uh, his best moments were he drew him into the little brawls. I mean, that that would be the time where he's going to be able to you know, land one of his big bombs because he does all, his, all the punches he throws are hard. Yeah. Well, you look at the last three rounds, you know, Canelo come out and especially, like you said, he's a good counter puncher, you know. Triple G's throws some powerful shots. Canelo counter punches him and just clips him with some dirty right hand. Just you know, yeah. She wrote well, maybe not because Triple G has got a fucking granite chin. But yes, he does, know. man. He took some big punches and it seemed to have no effect on him at all. He just walked right through, and he landed that one right hand on Canelo. You can tell that you know that didn't sit well with him his whole body language changed after that round and then he started to gain more confidence maybe later on in the last couple of rounds but yeah I, I i believe he lost that fight though for that reason because he was not he was not moving forward at all not being aggressive like he should have been um i mean in the sense of those two fighters they're on a different planet to the rest of the sort of weight category <laughs> Do you think yeah. everyone's sort of up, up and cut? I mean, there's talks of uh, Billy Joe Saunders and Chris Eubanks Jr. that could maybe compete with them. I don't know if you've watched any of their fights, really. No, I haven't, man. I, to be honest, like, well, I love the sport. I love a good fight, um, you know, and mixed martial arts as well. But I'm not, I'm not a fan in that way. I'm not studying stats. The, the only time I study fighters, really, I always look at fighters stylistically for the matchups because I'm always trying to learn and hone my craft. 
Um, but if I have if one of my fighters fighting opponent, then I will study that fighter. Um, so, you know, fighters that stand out to me are fighters that end up becoming either masters of their style, stylistically, uh, like Connor's a master of the long range style. He knows precision footwork, what I call micro footwork. He knows the distance. He knows how to counter well, how to draw just out of range. Um, so if I see somebody stylistically, I like, I, I kind of follow them. Or if I see somebody that I think could be a lot better, but they're not utilizing the right style. For example, uh, Daniel Cormier. He moved forward a lot, and I think he did pretty well against John Jones, but Daniel Cormier could do a lot better with head movement, just enough head movement to set up his punches and come inside of uh, John Jones' range. It's, it's missing from his game. I would love to help him with that. Um, but that's those are the fighters I kind of remember, you know, so I don't really know who would be an up-and-coming uh, for, for those guys. Yeah, I mean, Chris Eubank Jr., check him out, man, at some point. He's, he's vicious, like... I've seen he's training seen videos of him. Yeah, he, he's quite good, man. He's doing well. He's growing well. I remember his dad. His dad was a beast. Yeah, well, he's got his dad's DNA for sure, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so how valuable do you think striking is in the UFC now? Because obviously it's grown quite a lot. The UFC's grown. Everyone's gotten better. Back, I mean, maybe five, six, seven years ago, it was more, you had like judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, whatever, like, that was sort of the fundamentals now, and now striking seems to be sort of a main component in UFC now. Yeah, so um, I, very astute. I'm, it, it goes back far, much further than that. I mean, um, it goes back into you know 1993, obviously, when you know really jujitsu and the ground is what was predominant. And then um, oh, I forget the guy's names, but you had a you had. Uh, you had a kickboxer actually come come in, uh, the black guy. I forget. He was able to sprawl. He kind of created the sprawling ball brawl mode uh, of fighting where you could actually avoid takedowns. But I think what happened early on was that a lot of these guys were kickboxers, and uh, kickboxing or Muay Thai kickboxing in particular is a very kind of upright style, hands high you know linear movement not much lateral movement it's kind of stay in the pocket and brawl and uh what i think you're starting to see now in mixed martial arts over in your time frame that you laid out was the evolution of uh now application of boxing real boxing into the mixed martial arts game and it hadn't been there for a long time i'm not sure if it's because art jimerson came out that first time with a glove on his hand and was not successful i think a lot of people uh would say you can't use head movement in mixed martial arts because you're going to catch a knee and uh, a kick, which is possible. You know, every style has a strength and a weakness. Um, but, you know, knowing when to slip, how to slip appropriately, where to have, you know, hand placement, how to use lateral movement, how to bait people with your footwork, the different types of footwork that are involved in different styles. But, you know, but again, using Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson's footwork was much different than Muhammad Ali's footwork. So understanding this kind of different pieces of the sweet science, now you're starting to see that emerge and you guys got guys that uh, uh, like Cody Gambrant, man, bringing a fantastic boxing game yeah. into it. Yeah, so so you really see, you know, uh, Jun uh, Junior Dos Anjos, you know, he was bringing some good boxing. I think uh, Gustafsson is bringing some good boxing. So you're seeing different kind of styles come out, emerge, and uh, people are starting to understand that boxing is a major player in this game. It's just that people hadn't been applying it because they didn't understand how to do that. And this is something that I've excelled at was uh, – 
bringing boxing to mixed martial arts, modifying in a way that actually works well. So we're starting to see it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the fighters at the end of the day, they they start standing up. Do you know what I mean? So you'd think like you'd want to be able to throw punches and you know move properly and strike properly because at the end of the day you do start standing up. If you started lying down, grappling each other, then you'd probably want to work on that element and perfect that element more than you know everything's got to be complete you've got to be well-rounded but in the, the day if you're start, starting standing you want to be able to stop takedowns and be able to strike well and throw good kicks rather than grappling i mean tyron woodley and uh, that damian meyer fight i think was for the average fan probably not great but for me i massively enjoyed watching woodley just stop being taken down like 27 times or something ridiculous you know against damian meyer who's a fucking beast so that was, that's an interesting fight, and here's where I think Woodley did very well. And actually, uh, the style stylistically, he used what I would call the long range style. Long range style used a lot, a lot of movement. It's like the matador against the bull, right? Obviously, uh, Maya was the bull, and uh, uh, so Woodley was the matador. He lateral movement, man, to defend the takedown, brilliant, very good. But, but again, one of the core philosophies of, of the styles that I teach of any style really should be like always finish with defense right so he defended well but use your defense set your offense and one of the things he didn't do and it could have been very well that he was just hurt with a shoulder I don't really know you know but he should have been using that lateral movement to set up a counter too he should have punished Maya for shooting and he didn't and that's why Maya ended up shooting so much because there's no really no fear of being countered with anything and and countering again using your defense of your offense is really the highest level of striking so it's very important to be able to use that defense to set up any offense that you have it, it punishes the striking output of your opponents yeah I mean I think Woodley said as well, he's kind of like I'm the champion at the end of the day come come get me come trade with me you know and yeah. he was just like I'm going to defend I'm I'm not going to be taken down I'm going to land some punches on you and that and win that way and if you really want it let's have a tear up and obviously <coughs> Maya didn't necessarily want to go down that route and therefore Woodley went out on the win yeah, and, and I think it's a fine line to walk, right? So uh, one of the things people loved about Brad was that he was a balls-to-the-wall fighter, you know, and was that always the best approach? Because you have to balance, but, but people love him, you know? Mm -hmm. Dana White said it was his favorite fighter at one point. Uh, but you have to balance, like, winning with being exciting because at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's sport. Sport is the business of entertainment. And entertainment, you know, promoters have to put butts in the seat to make money so that the fighters can make money. So you really have to balance it with more than just winning, you know, what, what, how exciting you want to be, how much risk you're going to take. You know, the more risk fighters take, uh, the more exciting they are to the fans, but also the they start increasing the chance of them getting caught and losing somehow. So it's a fine line to walk. Agreed, man. Should we wrap this up? Well, sure, brother. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, well, massively appreciate your time and everything for coming on. Um, I'll speak to you off camera anyways, uh, but if you send me over any links you want, I'll drop them in the description box of the video and get this uploaded. Oh, that sounds very cool. Will yeah. do. Massive. Like, honestly, really appreciate your time. Um, I'm planning on having a podcast with uh, Phil DeRue and Jason. Um, very cool before very ufc good. 217 um, yeah just for fight predictions and that maybe you can hop on with us as well and we'll do like a four-way podcast 
Oh, I'd love to. I've actually uh, written articles with both those guys. Uh, Phil used to uh, be one of my uh, striking students. Uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge. Jason's been uh, writing for a long time, so that would be fun. Yeah, yeah, we'll get us all in and try. Hopefully, my PC will be able to run it properly, but it should should be able to. So hopefully, we can have a four-way call, fight predictions on UFC 217 and see how it goes. Sure, sounds great. But I'll talk to you off camera anyways. Cheers for coming on, man. Osa. <laughs>